Hello, everyone. Welcome to part two of our highly requested shiur with Rav Shmuley Phillips exploring Ashkenazi versus Sephardi Talmudic methodologies. Uh, Rav Shmuley recently published a wonderful uh, new book, uh, Talmud uh, Reclaimed, um, where the topic, this topic, as well as other foundational topics related to Talmud are explored. Highly recommend everyone get themselves a copy. Uh, with that said, thank you so much, everyone who is here live. Thank you, everyone who's going to be listening afterwards. And thank you so much, Rav. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. Good afternoon, wherever you are. And thanks for joining live, those of you who are live and those who are listening on the recording. Yeah. Hi, hi. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Um, I'm going to assume for the purpose of this shield that people have heard last week's shield, which sort of sets up a lot of the sort of the background in terms of the different methodologies employed by Rambam, Riff and the Gitonim on the one hand, and the Baritosfot on the other. I'll give a very quick recap here at the beginning, just before I jump in. But uh, yeah, if there are any more questions on that, I recommend people to, to sort of get, have a listen to last week's shiur, because that goes through a lot of the sources, a lot of the examples, which will help yeah, explain what's going on. So last week, we opened this mini-series by looking at or contrasting the different methodologies of the Rambam and the Gaonim on the one hand, when how they approach the Talmud, Talmud study, or determining halakha from the Talmud, and how they Tosafist too. And we noted, we looked at the Rambam's introduction to Moran Avuchim, where he brought the Talmud as an example of a single text, which is made up of lots of different opinions. The significance being that he doesn't assume he doesn't take it as a given that different sugyot in the Talmud, different passages, are necessarily in agreement with one another, and they, that they have to be reconciled with one another. As, as, as opposed to the Tosafot, who tried very hard to try and find uh, reasons to, um, and explanations to which they can reconcile different passages of Talmud. So the Rambam sees them as disparate, as different passages, belonging to the opinions of different Chachamim, Whereas the Balitosafot will, as much as possible, try to reconcile and bring them together, see them all as interconnected. And we saw that the Rambam's primary methodology when trying to establish and determine what the halacha is from the Talmud, we saw it first from the Geonim, quoted by Rebbein Chananel, and then by the Rambam, as explained by his own son, Rav Rambam, Rambam. They will try to isolate and identify the primary passage which deals with each topic. So if you have a halachic question, which is dealt with in three, four, five different places in Shas, so there'll typically be one primary sugya, which let's say deals with tefillin or Shabbat, and that will be the, the primary sugya, which we will call the sugya, the Shemaitasa, that we will isolate. And then you'll the, the use of various klalim to determine the conclusion of that one primary sugya. And as we saw in the Ad Malachi, with the way the Rambam works, any um, any uh, secondary sugyat, any indications from elsewhere are not considered particularly relevant to determining halakha. So, um, so that is one point. And another point being that the Rambam will not try to bring in any additional svara other than what is written in the Gemara. So if, so if a certain halakha appears in the Gemara, so certainly he won't try to reconcile that with other sugyat elsewhere, and he won't try to bring in others other logical interpretations in order to reach the halakha. Typically, Rambam Rifan Ganim will record the the uh, conclusion of the primary halakh, uh, um, halakhic passage of the Gemara as it is found. On the other hand, we saw the Bali Tosavot, um, one of their biggest supporters was the Maharshal in the Ashkenazi world, and he he gave them big praise from the fact that they were able to take the Talmud, which was this uh, seeming uh, mass of disputing um, irreconcilable sugyot and opinions, and Tosfot, according to the Marashal, were able to turn the Talmud into one big ball, Kadur Gadol, meaning that they were able, through their use of Svara, through even Talmudic methodologies, they were able to reconcile and come up with suggestions as to how to reconcile all the different sugyot, or most of the different sugyot in Shas. So therefore, typically, when we look to a, a, to a Tosafist interpretation of Alakha, they will find three, four different sugyot dealing with a certain question. 
and it will try to um, provide a reading of the halacha and, and rule upon, uh, upon a halacha in a way which recognizes the input of all of them. And we're going to see this very much in the example. We're going to go through an example tonight. If any of you have a Gemara Sanhedrin on the hand, it's, it's very useful. If not, I'll try and put it up on the screen. Um, a sugya in Masechet Sanhedrin, which goes through, we're going to see the opinion of two different Tosafists. And then we're going to have a look at the opinion of the Rambam. Um, we're going to see how they come to their halakhic conclusions. And we're going to see at the end a, a brisk approach to it, or a fine brisk uh, who is the, the flagship, who is the, the uh, originator of the brisk uh, methodology, how he reads the Rambam in light of this sugya, having seen the Tosafot and then projecting that approach onto the Rambam. We're going to see some very interesting things. Okay, so let me remember how to do this. I'm going to get the sugya up over here. And then share screen. So that should work, right? Where's it gone? Share screen is here. Does that work? Do you see anything? It's loading. Now we see it. Okay. So I'm not going to go through this Gemara line for line. It'll take probably half a shiur. Um, what we're looking at this uh, sugya is there, there are certain um, averot which are considered so severe that one must give up one's life rather than commit them. The the standard halacha is the bahem that even when it when, when it comes to a matter of life and death, we are obligated to remain alive, even if that means. Um, committing an Avera. For example, as we know, that, um, if someone is very uh, ill on Shabbat, we'll call an ambulance, go to the hospital. If someone's starving, they'll eat non-kosher food. The standard position of halacha is that one's life comes first. There are, however, several exceptions to that, and that's what this, this uh, sugya is going to examine. So let us start over here. Okay, you see, I've highlighted a, a line here. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Mishum Rabbi Shimon ben Yehud Sadak. So Rabbi Yochanan taught this uh, tradition from Rishon ben Yehud Sadak. Nimnu v'gomru baliat beit nitzah belud. So this implies the term Nimnu v'gomru implies some kind of formalized uh, resolution of the halacha in a court setting. So what are they? What, what was formalized in this setting? Kol averot shabatorah. Any avera in the Torah. Im omrin adam avor al tarag. If, for example, if we imagine the situation, you've got a, a non-Jew who puts a gun to your head and says, "Commit this avera, or I'm going to kill you." So the halacha of all averot in the Torah is yavor v'aliharag. You commit the avera and you you stay alive. Chutz, with the exception of if, it, if it's a matter of worshipping idols, or committing severe forms of immorality, like adultery, or committing murder. You have three exceptions you have to give up your life for. Idolatry, adultery, and murder. So, And then we're going to have a look very quickly at the source uh, idolatry is not going to be the subject so much this evening, so we'll skip through that one. It's a hafta tashem alakecha. They bring the pasuk of that. But now let's go down to. We're going to do this more for the second part of the shiur. The source for adultery and murder. How, how do we know that these are are such severe averot that you must give up your life for them? So there's a pasuk. Regarding Nara Amorasa, this is an engaged, uh, an engaged girl, and it says Kikasher. It's, it's talking about a case where she was raped. So it's it's a case where adultery has been committed, but she is not culpable. So there's a sin of adultery, and the pasuk says, in explaining why she is not culpable, why she is not punished, the pasuk uses a rhetorical flourish. Key, this is the Nara Lai Tasetava. You don't do anything to 
the girl who was raped, she did not do any sin which is worthy of death. And then the Gemara quotes, just like a man rises up against another man and kills him, so too is this matter. So in simple Peshat, what the Pasuk is telling us is that the girl who was raped is not culpable, is not deserving of punishment any more than a victim of murder is not is not guilty and not does not need to be punished. It's it. She's completely innocent of any crime because it was against her will, as opposed to other legal systems, other religions maybe. That's on the Peshat level. However, the Chachamim Darshan, the Hekesh here, Hekesh is, a, is one of the Yud Gimel Midot, one of the hermeneutical principles, which states simply when you have two different halachot which appear in the same pasuk, it is understood that, that certain details of these halachot can be inferred, we learned out, derived one from the other. And in this case, it's not just the fact that these two subject matters of murder and adultery are adjacent to each other in the same pasuk. The pasuk actually explicitly compares them. The pasuk explicitly says one is like the other. So we move down over here so that the, the Gemara, or the, the brighter here, Rebbe brings several halachot which and learned and inferred one from the other. And the final one is relevant for us. Makish, uh, there we go, over here. So Nara Amarasa, the betrothed maiden, again, someone who is, has had Erosin, who's had engagement, um, has had Kiddushin, is considered fully married on Torah law, so it's a full case of adultery. And this case of adultery through this mechanism of a hekesh is compared to retzeach, compared to murder. Ma retzeach yerag v'al yavar, just as in a case of murder, if someone says to you, kill someone else, or I will kill you, you're obligated to allow yourself to be killed and you cannot commit murder. Murder is such a severe offence that even at the risk of your own life, you cannot commit murder. So just as retzeach is severe, is one of these severe sins which you cannot um which you cannot commit even if at the risk of your own life, so too, af Narahamarasa, so too the betrothed maiden, so to the case of adultery, terag valtavar. A person must be willing to give up their life rather than commit adultery. Okay, so that's the Hekesh. We're going to come back to that a little bit more later. And then just finishing off, Ratzach, Kufemin What about uh, the case of Ratzach itself? How do we know the obligation to give up your life rather than to, to commit murder? So that's a couple of lines. Allah, Miyemar, Didach Sumaktefe, Dilma, Damatahu, Gavra Sumaktefe. It's a Svara that we don't know whose life is worth more than anyone else's. We're not given the authority by the Torah to, to indulge in guesswork and say, well, I think um, my life is worth more than someone else's, so I will stay alive and I'll kill someone else. No, you are not allowed to make that choice. You have to give up your life when, rather than commit murder. So those are the three uh, classic exceptions, three severe averot, which are so severe, idolatry, adultery, and murder, that you must be willing to give up, your, give up your own life for it. There's one other case, which, or there's, there's two others, we'll get, we'll skip to this one. Parhesia, the line down here. Ki rabin, amar rabi yoyechanon, afidu shloi b'shant gezeres ha-melech, lo'i omru ela b'tzina, about b'farhesia. In a case where there is a public demonstration going on, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a public event going on, and the non-Jew threatens you in public to do some kind of avera or lose your life. In such a scenario, filu mitzvah kala, even a light mitzvah, we'll see what that means in a second, even a not one of these three um, stringent averat, yerad valiavar. Since I presume it's some sort of matter of Hashem, the, the non-Jew is making some big uh, point of 
a public point of trying to get the Jew to do something he's not allowed to do. So any, in such a scenario, in, if it's a big public scene going on, you must be willing to give up your life for any mitzvah kala. And as a side, my mitzvah kala, what is a mitzvah kala? What is a light mitzvah? We're normally told we can't weigh up these things. Amar Rav Yitzchak, Amar Rav. Skip to the next page. Even changing over the type of shoelace you have. So is it just as an aside, there's an interesting over your shoelace. So according to Rashi, this means even a matter of minhag. If the Jewish, if the Jews are accustomed to tying their shoelaces one way, and the non-Jews tie their laces another way, and even a matter of minhag. If it's something which the non-Jew is trying to get the Jew in public to identify as a non-Jew or to, to break even a custom, the Jew is obligated to give up his life for it. Rambam and the Rif understand this differently. They, under they understand this in the context of uh, of a loitase, of b'chukatayim loitelechu. And without going into all the details, they understand that actually being a loitase involved. So for the Rambam and the Rif, it has to be some kind of avera. However, that's to be understood, according to Rashi, even a matter of minhag. So again, so, so to summarize, we've got these three averot, which under any circumstance you must be willing to give up your life for rather than commit. Idolatry, adultery, and murder. Adultery is actually learned to have a hekish from murder. And then this case of parhesia, if it's in public, <clears throat> if, it is, if, it is a matter, if it's a public exhibition, where the non-Jew is making a stand and trying to show the Jew will will uh, betray his religion in public, any light mitzvah, whatever we understand that to mean, you have to be willing to give up your life for. Now comes the big question, which is at the center of the shiur, and it's going to be a question rather than the answer. The answer is less important here. We skip down to over here. The Gemara is now going to ask on the principles that have been established so far. How do we understand it? Baha Esther Farhesya Havai is the bit I've highlighted here. In the Megillat Esther, we know that Esther married Achashverosh. She had relations with a non-Jew. So the way Rashi explains it, which I think is the way that Rambam and many other commentators understand it, Nivalalobet Kachavim. She allowed herself to have relations with a non-Jew, the Chashverosh. She didn't allow herself to be killed. This was something very public. This was something the whole kingdom knew about. Most of the world knew about it, assuming how, 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 uh, how uh, wide Chashverosh's influence went. So it doesn't get much more Farhesia than this. This is a very public exhibition of a Jew having to break their, the rules of the Torah. Esther was doing something in public. So even though seemingly it's only a minor Avera, meaning it's not one of the three um, cardinal sins, it's only one of these a minor Avera of relations with a non-Jew. Relations with a non-Jew is not, is not called uh, adultery or immorality. It is prohibited. But the Gemara asked, well, according to what we've established above, Esther should have said, well, this is something which is parhesia. This is something which is in public. Therefore, I'm obligated to give up my life rather than marry a chashverosh. And we know that wasn't the case. So this is going to be a question on the principles we've established. So Abaya and Rava have different ways of understanding it. Abaya says, She didn't actively um, participate in the sexual intercourse. And since she wasn't actively participating in it, therefore, the rule of parhesia publicly going against her principle, her, the Jewish religion is not a problem, not engaged. Only when you actively do something with Farhesia. Rav has another answer. In Hanas, this is one that the, the Rambam rules according to. Hanas Atzman Shani. This rule of Farhesia, where the non-Jew is, is making an exhibition, a public exhibition, to pressurize the Jew to break halakha is only when the non-Jew is doing it as a matter of principle. The motive of the non-Jew has to be, I'm going to try and show everyone that I can get the Jews to betray, to betray the Torah in public. 
And that's not what happened with Achashverosh. He didn't even know that Esther was Jewish. He was doing it solely for his own benefit. And therefore, the rule of Parhesia is not engaged, and that's the answer. However, we are going to be very bothered by this whole question of Parhesia, Parhesia, Havai. Why is that? One second. Right, so the Bane Tosvat have a very tough time with this whole, with this whole question. I'm going to switch now. Rather than going through the whole Tosvat, I'm going to just highlight the main parts of it that we need within this document. You can see the document? Can you can you see the document? Do you still see the uh you still, yeah, you still see the, the tumble, yeah. So I'm gonna stop I have to stop sharing and start again one minute. Right, is that better? Can you see the Word document now? Yes. Okay, perfect. So Tosfat asks, What's the Gemara asking? That, that uh, surely Esther was, was committing a minor offense, but in public. Tema, this is astonishing. Instead, the Gemara should have asked, Arayot Havai. The Esther was committing adultery. This is not a challenge just to the principle that when a person is doing a minor Avera in public, they have to give up their lives for it. Surely Esther, we know, was married to Mordechai. How do we know that? Because there's another Gemara in Megillah which I'm scrolling down to now. The, the, it is a drush, it's an actually a Gadik Gemara, which makes it even more interesting. So when Esther was orphaned, Mardachai took her in, in simple pshat, as a daughter. But Tama Meshum Rabbi Meir is a bright eyes taught in the name of Rabbi Meir, Al Tikre Lebat, don't read it as a, a daughter, but as a house, meaning as a wife. And there's there are other parallel agadots which are taught the same way. And as we know, what do Tosavot do? Tosavot assume, as a as a starting point, a, a premise, a default, that sugyot are in agreement with one another. Therefore, assume Tosavot, the author of this Gemara in Sanhedrin, who's talking about the rules of Yarag Aliyavar, when you have to give up your life for, rather than commit an Avera, must have agreed, we presume, that Esther had been married to Achashverosh. And therefore, when she went to marry Achashverosh, having been married to Mordechai, she's committing adultery. It's not just a mitzvah kala, the farhesia, it's, it's, far, it's far worse. It is adultery. So how are we going to get around this? So we're going to see on the basis, so so what, we, what we've seen as a starting point is that Tosafots have entertained a question based on their methodology, based on their perspective through which they view Shas as one big ball. They've now entertained a question which, from what we've seen, the Rambam would not even have asked in the first place. Because the Rambam's presumption would have been, yes, there's, I mean, without getting into the matter, there's an Agarata, there's that Gemara Megillah which understands that Esther was married. But we, there's no reason to presume that the author of this Gemara in Sanhedrin is the same author or is in agreement with that Gemara in Megillah. So hold that for a minute. Now let's see the creative resolutions that Tosafat come up with, with significant halachic ramifications in order to try and answer this question. We're going to start with Rabbeinu Tam, who's got a reputation generally as being the, the, the most or one of the more creative of the Balei Tosavot. The Tiretz Rabbeinu Tam, over here. Tiretz Rabbeinu Tam. The Ein Chayavin Mita Al Bilad Avad Kachavim. That one is not obligated um, to give up one's life. One, one is not Chayav Mita at all over relations with a non-Jew. Because the Torah has, what's the best way to phrase this? 
has been mafkir, has rendered ownerless, literally, has disassociated the, the uh, offspring, of the seed of a non-Jew from him. He, he cites this uh, back up from the uh, Yibamot. Their flow is like the flow of horses. So, what do we see from there, says Rabbi Nitzam? We see that sexual relations with a non-Jew is not, is not equivalent to sexual relations with a Jew. And as a result of this reading of Rabbi Tam, in order to answer this question, which we'll get to in a second, so Rabbi Tam. Um, he wanted to we see other Roshan readers he actually was Matir he produced a leniency a significant leniency in biblical law for Abbas Yisrael Shehemira who had um, said that she'd converted to Christianity so married Jewish woman who had run off with a Christian man had an affair with a Christian man and then later on the Shub Nitzgayer Imam Later, they both do to Shiva. Years later, they do to Shiva, and this Christian man now converts to Judaism along with and brings her back with him, and they want to marry each other. Now, the, the usual law is that when a Jewish woman has an affair with and um, with a certain man, there's an Issa Labal Issa Laboyal. When a when a married woman has relations with a man that he, she is now permanently forbidden to him. Even later on, if, if, if there's a case of divorce or if she's widowed, she's never allowed to marry that man. Isla Baal, Isla Boyle, as we'll see. But the Rabbeinu Tam is trying to, is, is, is suggesting here that that's only when it's a Jewish man. When she has relations with a non-Jewish man, that is not regular, doesn't have the full legal status of adultery because it's a non-Jew, and a non-Jew doesn't have a full legal status of being able to have sexual relations. You cannot apply this rule of an, an isur between a, a woman and her lover. You cannot apply that to relations with a non-Jew. Because it's not a regular it doesn't Under Jewish law, it's not considered full biyah. So you see what he's doing here. The question is, having put these sugyot together of Megillah and Sanhedrin, we've got the question, well, surely Esther was married to Mordechai, so how can she now have relations with Achashverosh? We're going to answer that by saying, well, since Achashverosh was not Jewish, it was not really such a problem. It did not have the status of full adultery. And therefore, it would not have been a case of because that's only when it comes to a Jewish man. It would still have been prohibited, but it would not have come under the three cardinal sins of adultery. So in order to answer this question, which was created by putting sugyot together, Rabbeinu Tam has now come up with this, with this um, creative ruling to say that non-Jews do not have a full status of, of uh, intercourse under Jewish law, and through that, it's created an enormous leniency of allowing this Jewish woman who's run off with a Christian man, who, under, who according to Rambam, other Rishon, the simple meaning of the Gemara, they're now prohibited forever marrying each other in the future. Rabbi Tam is, is going to say that, no, we see from all this that intercourse with a non-Jewish man is not considered full legal intercourse, and therefore they're muttered to marry each other once he once he's converted, once they've come back. So this is a an enormously significant halakhic uh, ruling which has come about through combining the sugyot. And as we're going to see, not only does the Meiri, not only do, do, do other people from, from uh, outside the Balei Tosfot uh, reject this, even some of the Balei Tosfot themselves are not happy with this. The Hiksha, this is going to be the Rivam, who's the second Tosfot we're going to see, and we're not going to go through it. He brings several sugyot, which he says show that this legal ruling of Rabbeinu Tam is not correct. But the other Tosfos do not reject the methodology of Rabbeinu Tam. 
they all uphold the question. They all uphold the question that Esther had been married to Mordechai, and therefore surely the Gomorrah should have asked, well, why is it just a matter of mitzvah kala before Hestia? That she's doing something in public, a, a minor mitzvah avera of having relations with the non-Jew in public. Surely it's something much more. She was married to Mordechai and therefore it was adultery. They'll have to find different, different ways of resolving it, but they all uphold the question. They don't uphold Rabbeinu Tam's answer, which has this halachik nafkemina. And as you see here, the Me'iri comes out very strongly against this ruling also. Maybe not going to have time to go through all of it now. Um, and he, he quotes this ruling for Rabbeinu Tam, and she says that he wasn't, that Rabbeinu Tam wasn't Matir, the woman to marry the non-Jewish man afterwards on this basis. And he's he argues very, he goes to all the sources to, to say why this couldn't have been. But Going to the, the Rambam, if we look at the Rambam's rulings when it comes to Isla Baal, Isla Baal, the, the prohibition that is created by a married woman having an affair with someone else, there's no difference made between Jews and non-Jews because, again, the Sugyot do not suggest any difference between them. Yeah, um, I've got here the, open, the opening Halacha in Hilchot Sota. The Kineetishtok um, warning is the first stage in Isra Sotan, and Rambam explicitly writes here, he includes O'akum, even if it's a non-Jew. Because again, the Sugyot in Sota, which set out these prohibitions between a married woman and the person with whom she has an affair, do not make any distinction between Jew and non-Jew. If anything, they imply even non-Jews. And therefore, this is sort also of that when a woman has an affair, she's prohibited not only to her husband, but also to the man with whom she has an affair, applies across the board to everyone. And just to, just to, to uh, a couple more sources before we move on to the next part of the Tosfot, the um, Kesef Mishnah on the Rambam confirms that Rambam did not accept or did not apply this Jirash of Esther being married. He read this Gemara of Esther she committed a sin of having relations with a non-Jew but, um, but the, with the aggravating factor that it was public knowledge not adultery because he did not apply, he did not read this Gemara in Sanhedrin in the context of the of the Agadata of Esther having been married to Achashverosh um, and Rashba says again in the same way we don't bring in questions from Agadic sources and if you look at the the Pshat uh, commentaries on the on the Megillah Esther as well, you see that the commentaries like the Ralbag, the Rashbam, possibly also Eben Ezra, read it simply that Esther was not married to Mordechai, and all that was going on here, the Gemara's only concern in this sugya would have been that therefore that she was having relations with a non-Jew, which is mitzvah kala compared to the three cardinal sins with the aggravating factor that she was married. So Tosafot, by bringing these sugyot together, a re of understanding, therefore, that Achashverosh and Esther were married, are creating this problem of, well, why doesn't the Gemara ask the greater question? And as a result of that, having to come up with these innovative resolutions, one with, with a huge halachic leniency of such Rabbeinu Tam, we're now going to move on and see the Rivam solution, and we're going to see what Brisk, or how Brisk does with that, reading it back into the Rambam. At this stage, are there any questions, anything to clarify before we move on to the second half? Okay. So now we're going to see the second half of this Tosafot. <clears throat> so Ruvam, first of all, brings a series of... of arguments against Rabbeinu Tam's leniency. But he upholds the question. The Rivam is a Tosafist. He reads the Sugyot of Megillah and Sanhedrin together. So he is also bothered by this question of why did the Gemara not ask the more basic question that Esther, as a married woman, married to Mordechai, should have given up her life, regardless of whether it was in public, from public knowledge or not, 
she should have given up her life because it was adultery and she was married to Mordechai. So the Rivam then offers his own resolution. It's going to get a bit more complicated now, so I'll, I'll go slowly, and if you want me to go back over anything, let me know. We're going to go into the sources of these this law of Yarod Valyavra, the one we mentioned at the beginning. Remember we said that the source of Valyavra, the obligation to give up one's life rather than commit a sin, for Atzeach is this Svarav. I, just, I, I don't know whose blood is redder, and therefore I, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to kill the other person. That is the reason why it is a severe sin that I can not commit. I have to allow myself to be killed rather than murder. And then we had this Hekesh, this scriptural link between these two different halachot that we find in Ratzach and Gilur Rayot are put together in the same pasuk. Cain had a from Narabarasa, and therefore we learn just as Ratzach, just as murder, one has to give up one's life for rather than commit. So too, adultery, immorality, one has to be prepared to give up one's life for rather than to commit. So the Hadalai Parich Hacha, Baha Esther Arayot Havai. So now, Tosavot 2, the Rivam. Why does the Gemara not ask, well, surely Esther was committing adultery? So, because the Gemara didn't even, didn't even uh, have this question to begin with, didn't even, it didn't even, uh, it didn't uh, think this question was relevant because Esther, was not actively participating in the sexual act. She was karaka olam. Why is this relevant? Immorality is learned out from murder. And in a case of murder, when are you obligated, under what conditions are you obligated to Give up your own life rather than to commit murder. Honey Millie, this is only Kodem Shiyarag Bayadayim. Only before you commit murder actively. You do a positive act of murder. Aval, master. If you are not actively being pushed to commit murder, Kugoin, Tinok, So let's say in this hypothetical scenario, the non-Jew puts a gun to your head and says, if you don't go and kill someone else, don't go and shoot them, I'll shoot you. You have to give up your life. Because shooting the other person is an active sin of murder. But if he says to you, I want to pick you up, I want to launch you and throw you onto a child and kill the child, so there, according to Tosafot, you would not have to give up your life for that because you are not doing an act of murder. murder and you are just allowing yourself to be used as a weapon. So Tosfat is saying that it is only, in a case of murder, one is only required to give up one's life if one, is being, if one is being forced to actively commit murder. But if one is put in a situation where one is being pressured to only passively commit murder or be... Or be used in order for a murder to be committed, you would not be required to give up your life for that. Because you could say, well, I'm not doing any action. I'll sit, I'll, I'll stand back. And since I don't know whose who's blood is redder, well, I'm not going to do any action. And I don't know if the child's blood is red, if my blood is red, I mean, I don't know whose soul is considered to be more valuable. So I, I'll stand back and not do anything. So Tosavata understanding that in the case of murder, only active murder requires one to give up one's life. Therefore, Arayot, immorality, which is learned as a hekesh, the fact that you have to give up your life rather than committing adultery, is learned as a hekesh from Ritzicha. Therefore, 
Setosrat, the same limitations, the same details should apply. And when should I be required to give up my life rather than commit adultery, when I'm being forced to actively commit adultery, to do an action, a, a, a sexual action, whereas Esther, which we're understanding from the Gemara, Karaka Olam, she was only passively um, involved in the sexual intercourse. Therefore, it should follow that she would never have been required to give up her life rather than be involved in this kind of immorality. Again, because of this, because there's this Hekesh from Ritzicha to Arayot, from murder to immorality, therefore we can say, says the Rebam, that murder, the requirement to give up one's life rather than murder is limited to a case when you're actively murdering. You cannot commit an active act of murdering. Only that is severe enough that you have to give up your life rather than commit it. So too, when I'm learning over this Hekesh, that you have to give up your life rather than commit a severe Avera to immorality, therefore the same limitations will apply. And I'll only know that an active participation in immoral intercourse, in an adulterous intercourse, will require me to give up my life. Since Esther was never involved in active intercourse, she was only karka olam, therefore the Gomorrah does not ask, are Esther arayot havai? It only asks the lesser question that she was involved in a minor sin, Bepharhesia. In pub and there's public knowledge. And he says it was in public, any minor sin she's involved with, even passively, she should have given up her life for. But the Gomorrah does not ask, based on this, based on this more based on the cardinal sin of adultery, even though she was married, because this is Tosafat, because adultery is only one is only required to give up one's life rather than commit adultery when one is involved in active participation in the action. That is Tosafot's second resolution. And again, this distinction between active and passive does not appear anywhere in the Gemara. This is Tosafot's interpretation based on the Gemara's explanation of we don't know whose blood is redder. And, it's, and, the, and Tosafot are therefore putting this explanation and this logical um, interpretation into the Gemara to say it is only when one is actively murdering, not, one, not when one is passively murdering. And therefore, the same limitation should apply in immorality, that one should only be required to give up one's life when one is actively participating. This is not explicit in the Gemara. And therefore, it's not explicit, it's not found in the, in the rulings of Rambam either. Rambam nowhere distinguishes between active participation and passive participation. We're now going to have a look at Brisk, because what Brisk, as we're going to see, they analyze Rambam through the lens of the Bali Tosafot, meaning they understand that Rambam employed Tosafist methodology and had the same questions as the Bali Tosafot. Well, if they came up with a different answer, then that must mean that they had a different, they, they resolved these sugyot differently, they had a different spara. So while we've seen that Bali Tosfat had this question, A, they, they created this question by saying, well, another Gemara says Esther was married to Mordechai, therefore there was adultery, therefore the Gemara should have asked about adultery, a question that the Raman would not have had in the first place, according to the sources we saw above. How do we answer this question? Well, Rabbeinu Tam, through a, 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 an astonishing innovation, that, non that, that adultery with a non-Jew is not considered proper adultery because a non-Jew in halakha does not have full status of sexual intercourse. Or B, the Rivam, by putting this explanation and interpretation into the Gemara, which distinguishes between active and passive participation in murder and adultery, when it comes to, the, uh, with, a, with, a, with an important difference when it comes to this law of when you're required to give up your life. None of this, based on what we've seen from the Rumble's methodology, 
is, is, is relevant at all because the Rambam will just record the, the basic halachot from the sugya. He won't assume that Esther was married and he won't assume any distinction between active and passive involvement in these, in these sins unless such a distinction can be found in the sugyot. So is there any questions before we go through the, the, uh, the, the brisk? Is Rab Chaim Halevi ala brisk? Al-Rambam, um, it's the, the flagship uh, brisk safer, and this is the first piece in it, the first piece of analysis. I see something up in the chat. Just to be clear, is Arayot just adultery, not relations outside marriage? So, good question. So, Arayot is, is adultery, and it's also various forms of incest. Um, so, that, that those are the forms of adultery that everyone agrees one must give up one's life for. Um, so, so relations with mothers, daughters, sisters, aunts, things like that, or with a married woman. Okay, so let's now have a look at. Sorry, is there another question? Yep, thanks. Okay, so let's let's have a look. This is now Rapheim Brisk trying to. Uh, he's uh, he's he's just asked the question of well, how does Rambam approach this whole issue? How does he resolve the fact that A, Esther was, 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 was a married woman, and B, we've, we've proven from Tosafot that there's a difference between, um, between adultery actively and passively, active and passive involvement, and also between murder, active and passive involvement, yet we don't see the Rambam mentioned this anywhere in his writing. So, as opposed to, say, other Achronim, like the Chazanish, who says, well, the Rambam, the Rambam doesn't mention it anywhere in his writing because it's not found anywhere in the Gemara. Therefore, presumably, he doesn't hold of any sort of distinction. Reb Chaim and Brisk will assume, no, he must have had, he must have applied the same methodology that Tosafot and come up with some sort of different answer. So why does he not... Consider, to consider there to be this distinct, distinction between active and passive involvement. So the yesh lomar, how, how do we now rationalize for the Rambam? To kivin de beretzicha gufa, in the case of murder itself, the distinction between active and passive involvement it must be that the Rambam had a totally different way of analysing this whole sugya, and that it's not that murder one is required to give up one's life for rather than commit, because it is such a severe avera. It's rather just because I've got a life has to be lost, either mine or someone else's. And I, and I just have to freeze the situation. It's more I can't cause any life to be lost. So if I'm in a situation where either my life must be lost or someone else's, I can't cause any life to be lost. It's not because it's a, such a severe sin, like the Bali Tosavot say. It's rather just because I can't cause any life to be lost, either mine or someone else's. And if I don't know what to do, I just have to sit passively. And it's just like a case where, I've got, where one person has to be murdered, one life has to be lost, you know, I can only save one person, I can't go and save either person, because I can't actively cause anyone to die. Therefore, Therefore, this is not a law which makes any sense to transfer through this hekesh to the case of adultery, to immorality. Since the whole source of this, of this law of having to give up one's life comes from the case of murder, the basic underlying principle in Ratzach, why I have to give up my life rather than murder, is just a matter of I must make sure no life is lost. 
ממילא הדי דינא דה שבע תעשה מעשיו ידיים שווים וכל גבנה תרג ואל תעבור. Therefore it makes no difference how a life is going to be lost or not. I just have, I just have to make sure that I don't do anything and I don't cause any, any, any life to be lost. So what is the difference between how he's explaining Tosafot and how he's explaining the Rambam? So he, he understood the Tosafot to be saying that because murder is so severe, therefore I have to give up my life rather than committing murder. I have a Hekesh, therefore I transfer that same severity over to immorality and I have to give up my life rather than committing immorality. Well, it is only a severe act of murder when I'm actively committing murder. So therefore, only when I'm actively committing murder do I have to, or be, when I'm faced with a situation which I would actively have to commit murder, that's when I have to give up my life. Transfer that through, say Tosavot, to morality. Only when I'm going to have to actively commit immorality, that's when I have to give up my life. That is the Tosavot Svar. Well, well says Brisk, if Rambam is disagreeing with that, that must be because they've analyzed, Rambam has analyzed this whole area of Yarog Val Yavar in Ritzicha differently. This whole requirement that one has to give up one's life in the case of murder is nothing to do with the severity of the case, but just because I have to make sure that no life is lost. It's, a, it's like a dinner pikuach nefesh. And pikuach nefesh, I have to make sure a life, uh, that no life is lost. And then it doesn't make a difference, therefore, whether I'm faced with a situation of having to actively kill someone, a person putting a gun to my head and saying, shoot the other person, or I'll kill you. Or a person saying, I'm going to pick you up and throw you on a baby. Passive involvement. Din pikuach nefesh, you have to save a life means you cannot allow yourself to be involved in anything and you have to give up your life rather than involvement. And that makes no sense to transfer through to adultery because there's no loss of life going on in adultery. Meaning, in the case of murder, I can say, give up your life rather than be involved in any loss of life. But I cannot say any, I cannot apply that to adultery and therefore, what, what, what do we end up with? One second. One, one second. Therefore, since in the case of murder, the prohibition, the requirement to give up one's life rather than committing murder applies whether one is involved actively or passively, then when you transfer that over to adultery, that will also apply whether it is active or passive. And therefore, the Ramam does not make such a distinction. So in order to explain why the Ramam does not record this distinction between active and passive, the brisk methodology has had to assume that he had the same svara as Tosafot, that, active, that you should make the distinction between active and passive um, committal of murder and then transfer over to immorality, and then had to find a different way of analyzing these 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 rot to say, no, really, murder is you're required to give up your life for regardless of whether it's active or passive and therefore when you transfer over to immorality you're also required to give up your life regardless of whether it's active or passive so what we see here really is first of all we've seen how Rambam and Tosavat analyzes Sugyot differently Tosavat combining Sugyot to raise certain questions and then innovating and, put, and putting distinctions into the Gemara and even finding halachic leniencies in order to resolve these questions that they've come up with by combining sugyot. Whereas you found the Rambam does not have this question in the first place and does not make any distinctions, does not suggest any distinction between active and passive involvement in these cases and does not make any distinction between um, sexual intercourse of a Jew and a non-Jew, because we don't find any such distinctions in the Gemara. Yet when it comes to Brist's analysis of the Rambam, <clears throat> rather than noting simply that Rambam, like the Chazanish does, for example, that Rambam is just recording the simple conclusions of the Gemara, 
Briscoe get into assuming Rahman had a similar methodology and trying to work out why a lot of it through through um, very intricate distinctions and arguments why the Rahman would not have agreed with the Tosavot's argument. And just a final page so before we're finishing, um, we noticed that the Chazonish um, noted that you know, he has he has a very uh, he has a few, some it's, it's a, quite a commentary on on Rapaim and Rambam the, the brisk commentary on the Rambam and he's quite uh, strong in his criticism sometimes and as so I mentioned uh, in my Facebook posts about certain censorship so these are certain statements which uh, my publisher wasn't happy with me uh, publishing in the book so I had to take them out I just had to I cited them without actually without actually quoting them. The Chazunish, I mean, this is the first piece in the Rabbaim al Rambam, and he says, when Rabbaim says, well, the Rambam, who doesn't mention this distinction between active and passive committal of sins, therefore must have had a whole different analysis of this sugya. Well, Chazunish says, around that point, no, it's the, none of this is, is compelling. The reason the Rambam didn't, didn't, uh, Make this distinction in this halachot is because this distinction isn't found in the sugyot. There's no distinction in the sugyot between active and passive committal of murder or committal of, of immorality when it comes to having to give up one's life. And a couple of other statements here you can see on the screen where Chazanish went even further in his uh, critiques of the brisk readings of Rambam. And these were the the um, passages I had to, the quotes of the Chazanish I had to take out. Um, but he, he he suggests that uh, he, he says, well, if you're going to read the Rambam this way and put in these distinctions, you're turning the Rambam into some kind of secret code. And why didn't he explain himself properly? And um, so it's, it's a, some pretty strong statements there. And yeah, it's actually it's actually very interesting to see how these different approaches, even in the modern yeshiva world, the Chazanish sort of influenced people who are yeshivas will read the Rambam. More simply, um, I think it's more common in the Israeli yeshivot as opposed to the brisk influenced yeshivot who will assume just from the starters, just from the starting point, uh, they have a basic premise that Rambam combines sugyot and was bothered by the same sort of questions that the Bale Tosavot were bothered by, as we saw in this brisk session tonight. Uh, thank you very much. If there are any other questions, um, we're delighted to. How do you get? How do I get your book? Um, one second. If if you are in America, then there's a link on talmudreclaimed.com. You can get it on Amazon through talmudreclaimed.com. There's a, a link to use there. Um, if you are in Israel, you can get it from Pomerantz Bookstore in Central Jerusalem. who deliver. And if you're in England, then just I guess message me is the easiest place I can get it delivered to you. Uh, any other questions about the from the show tonight? It's a, it's a lot to digest. If you have any questions, you can unmute or just write in the chat box. Also, the book on Amazon is on Prime, so you can get it in two days. <laughs> um, I've got kind of a, a side question, which so apologies is not directly related to the last thirty minutes, but um. Just the, the argument of, I'm probably taking this too literally, so um, apologies for this bit of a silly question, but if we ignore the Ariot bit, which is what most of the show has been based on, and that this was just a, a sin that Esther could have done, which wasn't, she didn't have to give her life up for because it was Bepharhesia, I still don't understand the logic of Bepharhesia when it comes to private sexual relations, because obviously that's not in public. You can, if, it, if it's general knowledge that it's happening, then maybe you could say that's Bepharhesia. And or if there's children, you can say it's Bepharhesia maybe, but I just found that a bit strange that that was the example given originally before we right. go into it, this. It, it, it seems that the Gemara is taking on that a sin that everyone knows is happening is considered something public and known, even if the actual act is not witnessed. Um, I think that there's a similar thing in terms of uh, when we, I mean, it's not done nowadays, but we say uh, Kiddushin can take place, a Jewish marriage can be formalized, Kesef, Shtar, and Bia, 
So I don't think, from what I remember from the Sigurd and the Shonim, that the witnesses actually have to see the act of beer. They just, it has to they're, where they're on the where they they uh, see the man and woman, the husband and wife, um, secluding themselves, or exactly what they see. They don't actually have to see the action itself. Some sometimes there can be some there can be um, whether it's called an anasade, something which is which is so clear and known by everyone that it's considered to be public knowledge. But uh, yeah, you raise a good point. It's, it's not a, it's not a classic example of Farhesi's on the in public. Yeah, just confusing, but yeah, that that makes sense. Thank you for clarifying that, and yeah, that was very interesting. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, so I think we're gonna end it over there. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here, Chacham. Thank you so much for this amazing, insightful um, two-parter. Uh, but Hashem will have you on uh, going forward. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for hosting me again. Good night, everyone. That's it.